Hello, I'm John Waters, and I'm supposed to announce there is no smoking in this theater, which I think is one of the most ridiculous things I've ever heard of in my life. How can anyone sit through a length of a film, especially a European film, and not have a cigarette? But don't you wish you had one right now? Mm, 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 mm. And I'm telling you, smoke anyway. It gives ushers jobs. And if people didn't smoke, there would be no employment for the youth of today. So once again, no smoking in this theater. Uh, what again plan. is your is Cody? Uh, sh- wait, is Cody not coming out for this one? No, he's not no. coming. He's in. Okay, then I will repeat it. Uh, my 2022 goal uh, is to. Uh, well, it's without the content. We're talking. We're talking about tattoos. And my 2020. I, so I, I, of course, every year have a lot of uh, New Year's resolutions that I never get to, uh, oh. as does I think a lot of people. Uh, but 2022, uh, just get buff as hell, and then get a heart mom tattoo on my bicep. And then maybe maybe like an anchor as well, you know, like a mm-hmm. classic Sailor mm-hmm. Jerry, but mostly the the heart mom. Okay. I think is the that's the move. Okay. Me, um, what's your reference point? Are you pulling it from SpongeBob? That's the only one that I know. Wait, or what? Popeye, the heart mom. Yeah, anything. Wait, really? That's it's a it's a that's a classic. I think Popeye is a well, common. I, I one, know it. I guess but the one that comes to mind is. I mean, doesn't doesn't he have heart olive oil? I I think that it it when you think of like iconic uh uh ironic tattoos you think of the heart mom you think of like a butterfly tramp stamp you think of your own face uh you know steve-o style um i think those are like the big three right like ironic tattoos nobody's going to continue this bit in any way no yeah no, you're I mean, right okay. I, I was i was going to pivot into a like Try harry it. what's your 2022 oh, resolution recording yeah we're are you are, uh, are you is your, is, your, is your bit that you, yeah uh, whatever yeah not an interesting one i mean what is it i want to be i want to read more i want to watch more movies i want to good you know, do stuff that uh productive anything that takes effort <laughs> Co- yeah. cody leaves right. for one week and we fall we fall we can't have a we fall apart very slowly I mean, all, man, all, I, I, I mean that makes sense <laughs> was aaron is the I, most charismatic when we uh when we both decided we were going to learn Japanese and then I don't think I studied a single time that year when it it was like our New Year's resolution. Do you remember this, Aaron? We took the classes yeah. and then we yeah. were like, okay, and we then did go to the classes. Got, yeah, but they got canceled because of COVID, and then yeah. we were like, okay, we're going to independent study. And then I don't, I didn't do it a single time. There, there is an alternate universe, Harry Mackin, where COVID. Uh, uh, it never happened where he is fluent in Japanese. He is now some sort of international uh, spy. He's, uh, uh, I don't know, snowboarding every weekend. I don't know. It, Interpol came th- knocking if around. If only not for COVID. Yeah. I'm really interested yes. in where the snowboarding came from. That's probably... Uh, it's a cool thing to do on the weekend, I think. Well, you're, you're cool. snowboarding in cool uh, Japanese mountains. You are like living in like a, a cool okay, two-bedroom apartment in Tokyo, yeah, you have a you have that all a cool would have happened jacket. exactly the way that you're describing it. Yes, if not for COVID, if it wasn't for if it just wasn't for COVID. Ah, yes, and shit. I would have I would have kept up with my Goodreads goal that I'm fifty percent of the way to at the beginning of December. Fifty percent uh, oh, isn't well. so bad, actually. Wasn't it is it? bad. That's very yeah, bad. You know, it's <laughs> fine. Yeah, wasn't it? But, was uh, it twenty books. How many books was it? Thirty six. I think. Okay, that's not bad. I, you did eighteen then. 
I mean, that's, that's more than I read this year, I think, probably. Yeah, definitely, for me. I mean, the, the trick, I think, what I'm going to do next year, because I was I mean to do it this year. I've I've uh, been meaning just to do all of Shakespeare's stuff. And the thing about Shakespeare's stuff is it's, it's obviously high literary value, uh, but it takes three days to read one of his plays. And so you can just knock out all, you know, 30 of those motherfuckers. Just boom, I mean, boom, boom, boom. You know, plays are meant to be read and consumed in one sitting. That's, you know, when you would go uh, to can, a, I, would go I mean, watch. Play. I don't know. I don't think you need to read a play in one sitting. I think you can break it up. I mean, you can. Personally. You can do whatever you want. I'm just saying. Uh, the The planning for this episode was cut short because Jason recorded. Am I going to read the email after my summary? Is that fine? Summary and then that's, boom, email. Yeah, that, that, that's fine by me. That sounds great. Yeah. Feel free to cut this. No, you are the, the you are the summary the man, and that is part of the summary. So I am the summary man. That's what they call me. Don't you know? I was born a summary man. Uh, okay. Well, then it's probably time to start the podcast at four yeah. minutes and fifteen seconds, which I'm going to take down on my timestamp. This that you're listening to is Trilove. It's a literal roundtable podcast where we uh, talk about movies we saw or people we met at the Trial on Cinema in Minneapolis, Minnesota. My name is Jason Daphnis. Uh Oh no, I should probably give our ads. Um, you can find our podcast at Trilove Podcast. You can find the Trial on Cinema at Trial on Cinema and at Trilon.org, where you, most importantly, you can get tickets to showings. Um, I am Jason Daphnis. I have a tree fetish, and you can follow me on Twitter at Nintendoofus. <laughs> I didn't I didn't think you were gonna pick that one, but I'm very glad you did. Um I'm about to prove the tagline of this movie wrong. I'm Harry Mackin, and you can find me on Twitter at Shataki Harry. And my name is Aaron. Aaron, you okay, bud? Oh, sorry, I fell asleep at a fell asleep reading my book. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at RB Please. Uh, this week's movie is The Aviator's Wife, a 1981 movie um, by Eric Romer, kicking off the Eric Romer's 1980s series at the trial. On Aaron, give us a uh, quick rundown. We'll give you a quick rundown after saying that I have like a weirdly high heart rate. For, I'm like weirdly nervous about reading the summary. I think it's because I did not practice oh. any of these French names and I am. Oh, God. <laughs> <sighs> yes, uh, we're talking about The Aviator's Wife 1981 film. Uh, this is the first film we've looked at, I believe, uh, directed by famous French New Wave film director Eric Romer, uh, who Gene Hackman's character in Night Moves describes the films of as like watching paint dry. Um, the aviator's <laughs> wife specifically follows a naive, lovesick, 20-year-old Parisian man named Francois, who sees his girlfriend, uh, Anne, leaving her apartment in the morning with another man. Uh, unbeknownst to him, the man is a young airline pilot named Christian, who is an ex of Anne's, who has come to inform her uh, after a three-month absence that he will be moving to Paris, but will not be seeing Anne anymore as he is moving uh, along with his pregnant wife. Um, without this knowledge, Francois becomes very jealous as he, he starts to speculate on what these two have been up to. Um, later on, he by chance sees Christian out in public and decides to follow him around as he meets up with another woman that he assumes is his wife. Along the way, uh, uh, Francois also meets a young schoolgirl named Lucy who goes along with his detective work and the two travel around Paris together over the course of a day. Uh, Philippe Marlode uh, plays Francois. Uh, Marie Riv Riviere, maybe, plays Anne. Uh, Anne Laurie Moiret, let's say, plays Lucy. And Matteo, 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 uh, Carrier plays Christian. Just botched four out of four of those. Uh, the film was a mid career. Matthew Carrier. 
thank you. You should. You should. Uh, uh, I, I mean, default to you. It, was was he Italian? Matteo Carriari. Carriari. That, that the Italian pronunciation. Very good. Yes. Uh, the film was a mid-career film for Romer, uh, also his first in his comedies and proverbs series uh, of six films, uh, in which each started with a, a proverb, a quick quotation at the beginning of the film relating to the themes present in the movie. The proverb for the aviator's wife, as Harry kind of alluded to, is it, uh, it is impossible to think about nothing. Uh, this film was also, my understanding, screened uh, especially to a few folks, including my uh, fellow co-hosts, uh, at least, you know, the ones who live uh, in Minneapolis uh, by, of course, John Moret at the Trilon. Uh, he sent us over an email with some of his thoughts uh, on the film that I will read now. Uh, we have here a few thoughts on Romer. Uh, from John Moret. Um, Though often considered a part of the French New Wave, I think it's clear he was a bit separate from them. Uh, when editing the magazine Cahiers du Cinema, he was criticized for being fond of earlier French filmmakers like Renoir, uh, Clouseau, uh, especially critical was Godard, uh, which is interesting as his films now seem the most dated and misogynistic, um, though his style continues to work for the most part. Uh, I think as time goes on, I tend to feel closer to Romer's work, especially these 1980s films. Though not without their own problems, they feel less captured by their own time. They feel more universal. The Aviator's Wife especially works. As we discussed after the film, it is essentially rear window, but without high stakes. I also think that the 16mm blow-up on a brand new 35mm print is an absolutely stunning experience. Folks, was it stunning? I was not there for the the in-person, but uh, how, was. how was that experience? It was really, really stunning. It is a beautiful print. Uh, newly struck, as John keeps saying, it's a, apparently a film term I wasn't familiar with, is that when a print gets made, it's called being struck. It's the uh, best it, verb. It's the best it, verb for creating anything. Like you're pulling it out of the earth, like a like a, like an iron worker. Um, but it is, it is really stunning to watch, really stunning to look at. All the colors have this really nice, like, not so vibrant as just like a natural pop to them. Um, there's, I think, I think probably Cody mentioned it. Um, well, everybody sort of mentioned it on our episode with Ganja and has how older uh, depictions of color and specifically like really bright colors like red and Ooh, green man. really pop on early film. Um, in this case, I don't think that it does that. It takes more of a natural, somewhat objective look at, you know, the actual scenery and sort of the, the world around them. But it really, really works on film. Um, it is fun to see how there's not like in early prints, you would see holes directly in the, um, for, for, you know, changing the reel, the cue to change the reel for the programmer, uh, for, for the projectionist rather in this case, it's a grease smudge. Like they don't want to ruin or like, um, uh, degrade the print that quickly. So anyway, it was, it was really interesting to hear that this print, uh, had only made it, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, Harry, to, uh, the Metrograph and what did it screen at can, um, before the trial on those two places. I'm not remembering what the first place, but yes, it was Metrograph, one other place, and then the Trilon. And yeah, John which, also said that for for all of our listeners, you should definitely go see this because he said it is virtually impossible that this 35 millimeter print will ever return to Minnesota. This is it. Yeah. So if you want to see this, uh, you should see it at the Trilon. And also you should want to see it because um, I don't want to be hyperbolic, but like just to follow up on what Jason was saying, I think that this was one of the most moving experiences of film as film that I've ever seen, right? Like, I, it's not my favorite movie. I really like this movie, spoilers. But just in terms of... I was almost overwhelmed by the reality of what I was seeing on the screen, right? It was like... It occurred to me as I was watching, and I'm not usually this... Um, 
sort of perceptive about this stuff that this is like a really important historical document in the in the sense that getting to see 1980s France and Paris um, depicted this way is like something that would be impossible for me, right? Like you could see still pictures of it, sure, but to watch actual people walk around in Paris and there are actually mm-hmm. like reaction shots of real, presumably I believe real people sort of reacting to the camera as it goes by is just mm-hmm. like an unbelievably thrilling and um like unique experience, right? It's like when when you get to see people traveling on Parisian public transit in the 1980s, it, like it would be impossible to see anywhere else. And so it's like, it's such an unbelievable joy to get to see it here. And it was like, I didn't even know I wanted to see this so badly. But yeah. now I'm thinking about all of the other eras of history and cities and, and places that I would love to see depicted in film, right? It leaves me with the same feeling with completely different tools as the Warriors does, where it's like empty streets and just this bizarre, yes. surreal vibe. But like New York in the 1970s, a place you're never going to get to see in any other way, right? Well, yeah, and that, that's actually what New York looks like right now, actually. Oh. Uh, with, you could, it's, it's still bombed out with robes of <laughs> very theatrically dressed gangs. That's exactly right. Uh, I was going to say this kind of in, in my thoughts, but we're I think we're going to go loosey-goosey with this one as, as yes. per our last episode. But uh, that, that does tie into kind of what I was uh, – thinking about uh and that that i was kind of doing some research on on reviews of the film and i did read a bunch of reviews and i, I do unfortunately have to to once again go to ebert uh who wrote did write a nice review on it and i just hate that he's one of the the people that we constantly go to it's kind of i guess normie oh, but, yeah. uh, like he, the, he, the biggest name in this in the industry that yeah. we like consider ourselves part of that's we definitely want to avoid him right we consider ourselves part of the film critic industry that's news no, to I, me yeah i did certainly Oh, that's true. Uh, no, he so he he descri- he used a specific word. He he called it uh, uh, this film's approach to its characters is anthropological, right? Hmm. Uh, I think that kind of yes. ties into wow, what he was talking really, about. That's a really really good point. That's exactly what I was going to bring up. Go ahead, Aaron. I'm and, sorry. And like a, a weird, I think a weird film to watch after the Herzog ones, which are are kind of have a similar aspect to them, but like done completely differently, right? Um, I, I don't think that was probably intentional uh, on John's part, but that these are like anthropological films. But the way that this does that is by kind of showing a a uh, kind of a slice of life, uh, a sort of situation. Um, you know, uh, not not unbroken an hour and forty minutes here. Obviously, quite a bit of time goes by over the course of this day or so in which characters are, are kind of living in. Um, but it, you do get the feeling that this movie is about. Uh, French, specifically Parisian life, right? And that that there's kind of this backdrop of who these characters are and the lives that they lead and how that's kind of unconsciously um, um, affecting, you know, the situation that they're in. The, the the fantasies that they're having about the people that they know. Um, I think that all that's very interesting. I think it's also interesting because it's a film that obviously wouldn't work with any sort of yeah, social media, in, any sort of instant communication other than the telephone. This film would be over in about five minutes, right? Uh, and, and the fact that there is, this is a film that kind of like contextualizes uh, like geography and the, the act of like going to someone's apartment to talk to them about a thing and how much of like an investment that is. Uh, as opposed to kind of the effortless communication that we have right now. Um, I think that that's one thing that kind of stood out to me uh, in relation to, to some of those themes. Yeah, just to sort of follow up on what Aaron was saying, because I think that's a really perfect launching off point for this movie. Um, Romer's movies are, are characterized, not just this one, but I'm 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 to understand 
a lot of them really focus on transit and the the movement of characters through spaces and their passage from sort of one scene to another, whereas a lot of people would cut off travel time. Like you might see um, the apartment and then the park, right? Um, And then maybe um, the younger girl's apartment. Whereas here, the unbroken or the seeming unbrokenness of our main characters travel through that place becomes as important to the film as the plot itself almost. I think that um, Cody would say that the city's a character, right? And that is so true in this movie particularly. I think that you brought up context, Aaron, and I think that's the perfect word to describe this, right? I think that the context of who these characters are and where they are and what they're doing is almost as important as their interiority, or rather those things are conflated, right? It's really easy to see in a sort of deterministic sense where they're interiority is affected by the exterior circumstances that they live in and vice versa. And that's what makes it feel so anthropological to me. It's like, I felt like not only was I gaining insight into these characters and their interiorities and the sort of fictional reality of the film, but I also felt like because it was so close to um, France and because of the care and the beauty of the the print, I was deriving some sort of like larger, not literal, but sort of artistic understanding of what Romer was trying to say about the state of things themselves in Paris at this time, right? It really feels like he's trying to do something semi-documentarian documentarian in, a, in a similar sense to Herzog, but in a very different um, affectation, right? Like this is, this is purely a fiction film as Herzog's were, but they're using fiction to do different things. And I think that the theme of this movie is actually really interesting when you consider what Romer was trying to sort of depict about the, the history and the, the place that he was inhabiting in general um, as well. So I think it's really, it's really exciting to get to talk about it through that lens. Yeah, that uh, we're getting into, I guess by extension, one of the things I wanted to say about the movie, which is like that feeling of the intentionality of the um, transit and movement of people through places, like you were saying, Harry, bleeds directly into like those individual interactions and the micro level uh, like dialogues that sort of make up the movie itself. There are like roughly three acts to it. Um, uh, and all of them are characterized by some like main conversation that happens. Um there's, you know, the setup where uh, uh, I'm already forgetting the characters' names, but um, Francois and Anne sort of have their, um, uh, you know, and, well, Francois and the aviator, whose name I'm actually actually Christian. forgetting, Christian. Oh, Christian. Christian, thank you. Uh, where Anne and Christian sort of discuss the future of things and how he wants to go back to his wife, um, and how you know they're moving to Paris and they can no longer be together. Sort of like just we désolé moment. Um, and then the middle act, of course, characterized by that uh, park scene between uh, Lucy and Francois, and then the final act being pretty much almost entirely composed of Anne and Francois's like come to Jesus type uh, thing where they start talking through each other more or less. But what I mean to get to is that these conversations uh, like the, just visually, they like stick with one person for a long time, usually um, instead of a lot of shot reverse shot, you know, like you will often just get two uninterrupted minutes of one person's face while even the other person has 10 or 15 seconds of dialogue and we just stick with that person and it has this feeling uh, like you don't i only noticed it because i started like sort of searching for it in the movie rather than like oh this is something that's called out it's it's like it's way more fluid than you might imagine and so and that's what i mean by uh that's why i'm trying to tie it to that idea of movement of like people through places is that there is 
a lack of that. Like it slows to a crawling bleed, I guess, in terms of how the movie actually moves once we get to people talking, once we get to the substantive dialogue rather than the the plot moments of people, you know, talking about the couple over there taking Polaroids or, you know, um, spying on them as they're going into the the law offices, et cetera. Um, It works in conversations with Lucy to like build the characters and like see how they react to one another saying things rather than just like focusing on the person saying things. And then later, like I mentioned with Anne and Francois, it works in conversations, uh, you know, where it's more competitive, where they're like just talking through each other, kind of where they're not really saying feelings that they, you know, what they actually feel. They're more like sort of forwarding conversation as, uh, you know, they're sort of pushing the conversation forward rather than explaining how they feel or trying to get to a resolution. It's like they sort of know where this is going to end up and they're just filling the space. It leads to like this very specific feeling, this very specific, like the brakes are always being tapped type feeling of these conversations um, where, you know, you end up sort of where you started. Uh, it's a very, like we spoke about with John right after the movie, we end up, uh, excuse me, we, we like, it feels somewhat circular. And so you can sort of um, identify with that feeling of unrequited love and like that inability to uh, move past it or lack of desire to move past it through these people's conversations because the only time that uh, Francois ever has like real or like the opportunity to develop and move forward is when he's speaking with Lucy, but he doesn't really like see that he's too obsessed with his mission to sting to to get um, Anne and Christian in catch them in the act sort of thing. Uh, Anyway, this is that was a long babbling way to get to my point, I think, which is that the motion of this movie is treats is treated very differently between where the, when the camera's moving and the plot is developing and when we're sort of sticking with these two characters um at a time usually. I yeah, I'm kind of curious what we think about the specifically what you mentioned earlier about the long scenes of dialogue with um, unbroken shots on one character. I, I think the the I think all of the examples in this film are pretty notable, but the the one that's really the most notable for me uh, is probably the diner scene with Lucy and Francois, kind of right in the 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 middle of the film. Uh, for a few reasons, one I think that's that's probably my favorite scene in the movie. Um, also, I, I think it really. Uh, I think that if there's like, I think all the actors do a lot of good work in this film, but I, I think Lucy's actor uh, Anne Laurie Moray. Uh, really is kind of the star of the show here She's in kind of an unexpected dude. way. Yeah, amazing. I think she was like 16 at the time of filming of this. Um, gotta be one of the best like teenage actors uh, in a film that I've seen. I mean, she, she, she's incredible, yeah. right? And like incredible at being 100% natural, right? Like I think these characters do actually feel like actual people uh, uh, right. in, in yeah, a very yeah. impressive way. Um, and, and in a way that I think is... Uh, I tried to uh, kind of get a, get a handle on this while watching it. And then after watching um, that, I think that this film, I guess it kind of ties in a little bit with what John had, had written about, um, about this kind of on the films of Romer specifically being a part of the French new wave while also being a bit separate from the French new wave. I had a really hard time thinking about whether the, the films and the filmmakers that I would view as kind of very clearly influenced by, if not specifically the aviator's wife, then, then Romer's films in general. Um, I was, I was struggling about whether that influence was, was there or whether it was kind of a, a larger uh, influence from the French new wave in general, because when I think of 400 blows, for example, which is, I guess a film that technically I was not on the episode of, but we technically covered is like the second episode of this podcast. It's correct? the first yeah. actually that we first, actually released. Yeah. Yes. Uh, 
listen to that or don't listen to it. I don't know. Uh, don't, I don't know. I can't. <laughs> we, we've gotten probably much better at this since I, then. I also think can't I remember. It, maybe. I remember like shitting all over that movie. I remember not enjoying it. So I'm I'm not. Jason I'm didn't really like movies back. until around episode sixty of this podcast. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, we we did the uh, the Terminator, and then he finally no. Uh, but but that is another film that that does not take place. I don't that does not take place over the course of a day. That take place over a longer period of time. But it does have the same kind of slice of life feeling to it. Uh, a lot of French New Wave films have that uh, uh, sense of, of kind of communicating the the struggles and the pleasures of, of everyday life in, in France, right? Um, and I think that w- when I think of, of filmmakers that I would view as like clearly influenced by what I'm seeing in this film specifically, uh, I think like Richard Linklater is an obvious uh, 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 name to bring up. I think much more problematically, I think Woody Allen is obviously very influenced by New Wave in general, and I, I, I'd have to imagine uh, Romer's films. Um, I think even probably most importantly, this podcast, I think someone like Wong Kar Wai uh, is very influenced uh, by this as well. Um, but the, the interesting thing with all three of those filmmakers is I think that they're communicating similar things, but they're doing it in such a different manner. Like, I, I don't think any of the films uh, of any of those three people feel like the aviator's wife, but I think that they are kind of doing a lot of the same things in like a very weird way. And I was kind of struggling to kind of put that together. Um, I don't know if there's a, that's a great jumping off point, but like uh, this feels much slower and more methodical. um, But at the same time, like there is still witty dialogue, but, but the editing is much more kind of smoothed out in such a weird way. I don't know if anybody has any thoughts on that. So you you had said um, Woody Allen, uh, Wong Kar Wai, and who was the first you mentioned? Uh, Linklater. Oh, Linklater. Yeah, I would add Hung Sang So. I don't know if you either of you have seen sure. his movies, but he's like very very clearly inspired by Romer, in my opinion. Um, and I think that that this is it corroborates your theory because I think Hung Sang So is doing something very different. Also, in that I don't read a ton of Romer himself into this. I read more about what Romer wants to say about things or about ideas or places or people. Um, whereas Hong Sang So's movies are like all about him in some, in some ways and, and deriving a lot of like insight from the personal. Um, but, but there is something interesting about that, right? I think that, that in, in all of these cases, maybe the through line here, um, is the way that without, um, a, and I mean, Wong Kar Wai sort of disrupts this because a lot of his movies do have interior narration, but the way that the exterior can give us a really great vantage point into the interior of the characters or the way that relationships help depict the sort of complicated interiority, interior landscape of the characters, because I keep thinking about how this is a movie where um, we never get to hear the interior thoughts of any of these characters, right? I believe. Um, Certainly not Francois, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, I, I don't think you could describe, I mean, and depending on how authentic you view the final conversation, uh, with Francois right. and maybe, I mean, oh, sure. I, I think could, that some of be, that is coming out there, about it. Yeah, but there's, there's certainly no kind of narration talking, you know, no characters talking to themselves in that manner, right. I don't think. And yet I feel that I have such an intimate understanding of the interiority of both of uh, the, the principal characters, Francois and Anne, and I can, we even are, are able to see the way that their perspectives and perceptions are fundamentally in conflict with one another and irreconcilable, right? And we're even able to sympathize with 
both of where both of those perceptions came from, even though they are not the perceptions that the movie gives us, right? I mean, that's like a magic trick to me. And I think that there's something to the way that the movie does that visually, because it felt like I was reading a third person limited novel, right? In the, in the sense that like when I, when, uh, by the end of this movie, I understand Francois so intimately, right? And I understand why he makes the decisions he makes, even though I know they're the wrong decisions, and even though I don't want him to make those decisions. <laughs> and uh, I feel similarly about Anne, and I wonder if that has something to do with what you're talking about, Aaron, just the way that like all of these formal aspects from the, the pacing to the tone to the, the nature of the conversations to the really great um, close-ups that you mentioned, Jason, were like, I'm wondering if those close-ups being on one character are meant to be sort of like, okay, now the the film is signaling to you that we are entering the sort of solipsist space of this mm. person's perspective, right? It's like now they are giving their sort of soliloquy on how the world appears to them, right? Because like all of like um, Francois's desperate soliloquies have that effect, right? Where it's like he is not, as you had said before, he's not even talking to Anne so much as he's trying to um, impose his reality on her, right? Like he's trying to say like, this is the way we are. This is how I feel about you. I really want to be with you. And he keeps getting up to go and she keeps calling him back at the last second, but it's just not working, right? And so they do talk past each other. And I wonder if that's supposed to be sort of formally what's what's depicted there. But I'm really interested in how that might interact with some of these other filmmakers, um, Aaron. Yeah, I, I think that um, I think that that's probably right. I also think that, um, uh, and I, I keep thinking of the diner scene that I mentioned, where they're kind of staking outside of where, where Francois and Lucy are staking outside of the apartment uh, that Christian and his, his sister go into. Um, but I, I think that that the the long shots and in, in kind of that scene, specifically the long shots that are focusing on Lucy, I think are, are supposed to communicate to the audience that. Francois is is like kind of actually paying attention to her in a way that he's very clearly not able to pay attention to Anne due to the Ooh, way that's he's kind point. of built her up uh, in his mind. And I think that that the final scene uh, with Francois and Anne, I, I think that similarly there actually is a bit more of the kind of cutting between the two characters. Um, and I think it's supposed to show the distance they have, right? They keep talking over each other. They keep talking, right. mostly Francois keeps talking through uh, Anne. And I think by the end of that scene, they do kind of come to an understanding and the camera kind of settles as they kind of sit down together uh, and finally start to like actually converse among themselves. Like, I think that's what I, I was kind of taking from it. Um, but, but even tying also a bit to what Harry said earlier, uh, about kind of the exterior lives of these characters and how you understand their interiority despite not having any sort of actual insight into it. Um, I, you know, I think if you you look at a film that we talked about earlier this year, uh, in the mood for love, for example, I think those are those are two characters that are, uh, I think, quite a bit more complex than than any of the characters in this film. I don't think that's necessarily a good or a bad thing, um, but I, I think that they are more complex characters. But I think that this film gets away with using simpler characters because uh, it, it uses kind of a shorthand that we understand uh, based on who these characters are and the jobs they work and their age to allow us to to gain some sort of knowledge of their interiority. Right. Like it, it's not a coincidence that Anne is 25 and Francois is 20 and, and Lucy is 15. Right. They are all at different stages of uh, the journey of life and they they the way that they are thinking about different situations is influenced by how naive, how young they are, right? Their own thoughts about love and relationships. Um, and I think that part of the, 
I think general incompatibility uh, that Francois and Anne have, even if they end up in an okay place at the end of this film, um, is I think just due to the fact that they are in different stages, right? Um, and the film is okay using those kind of shorthands to communicate that concept, right? Francois uh, wants to drop out of his schooling because he goes to school during the day and then he works as kind of a postman uh, package delivery person at night. And uh, he wants to kind of, you know, he wants to quit his studies so he can get a day shift and then he can spend more time with Anne. Anne is a smarter person, right? She understands that I'm not going to stay with this guy for my life. He's, he's, you know, he's a, a kind of a temporary fling that I'm having. And so she, she like very much pressures him and gives him an ultimatum that like, if he drops out of his studies, then, then she is going to leave him. Right. Cause she understands how foolhardy of a move that would be in the long run. But, but Francois is like kind of such a hopeless romantic and such a kind of pathetic simp uh, that, that he can't <laughs> like, he, he, he can't like envision how bad of an idea that would be. And I think that that's like a bunch of simple concepts, but they're all like backed up by, I think, very simple but effective characterization that allows you to, to understand that as a, a member of the audience. Yeah, I think this is actually scratching it. Um, just after watching the movie, I did the same thing. Just, you know, review poked around pretty much. And in 1981, this is like feedback that I don't know how somebody could watch the movie and come out with. Um, Janet Maslin wrote in 1981 for the New York Times in a review of this movie. Uh, and I quote, so there's much, there is much talk in the aviator's wife, but seldom, seldom does it specifically address philosophical or more moral matters. Instead, the characters define themselves practically and express their fears and wishes in a relatively simple fashion. Now, editors note here. I absolutely agree with that. That is like the the plain spoken, very natural dialogue is exactly why I love this movie so much. The next line says, this pragmatism doesn't necessarily foster clarity. However, if anything, it makes the material seem thin. That to me seems like an objectionable claim about some of this, because I think like, like Aaron was saying, it gets to deeper understanding of these understandings of these characters. It like builds from very simple, uh, plain spoken dialogue and very like real conversations to build like pretty complex characters. Right. And I think between the visuals that we were speaking about where there are like long shots that are meant to show you not just how somebody feels when they're talking, but how they feel, how they feel when they're listening between those things and how plain the dialogue is and how plain the like actual verbiage they're using can be. Um, I think that's very intentional. I think it's very intentionally, uh, like small, big things through small things, uh, through small, um, signifiers, I guess, like Aaron was saying, excuse me, Harry was saying about, uh, showing their interiority through the exteriority of their, of their circumstances of how they feel and think about the world that's around them without being philosophers, without being, um, you know, high-minded, very like, uh, self-aware people. Right. I, I, not to just shit on a critic from 40 years ago, but it feels like, the way that we're understanding this movie now is maybe not how it was seen back then through at least in terms of it's like seemingly unimportant line to line dialogue. And I think to respond to both the simplicity of the characters and the um, perceived simplicity of the dialogue, I think that you're both right. And I happened on that review as well, Jason. So I started to think about that. I started to think about why I disagreed, even though I, agreed with what the beginning of what she had said, right, as you did. And I just don't think that that character complexity or interior complexity is really the target here. I think that we are meant to understand interiorities very quickly because the real target is the fundamental mutual incompatibility between these interior states. And even though that seems impossible, right, we are given this outside perspective as sort of omniscient viewers through film to understand both why it's impossible for Francois to see and 
as anything other than the way he sees her and why it's impossible for Anne to see herself the way Francois sees her and why it's impossible for them to understand their mutual perspectives, right? It's like we understand simultaneously all of these individual points of conflict. It's like we know why Anne feels the way she does. We know what she's getting out of her relationship with Francois and how she sees Francois. We know that it's impossible for Anne to see Francois the way that Francois wants to be seen by her or to see herself the way Francois sees her. And we know all of those things on the other side, but it doesn't matter, right? It's like, even if we were there in the room with them, having this sort of omniscient perspective on how they are seeing things and where their thoughts and feelings are coming from, it wouldn't give us the ability to help them, right? It's just that that the place that these people are now in life, they have two perspectives that are fundamentally incompatible. And I think that the, the film does an extraordinary job of depicting that while giving us all of the parts that we need to understand where those things are coming from. And even sort of like making a bigger point using the entire sort of span of the film itself and Francois's journey through it about how that happens, right? About how you arrive at this sort of like at these dead ends in relationships and with other people and with yourself, because as the film's tagline says, it's impossible to think of nothing. And so like, there's this great irony in this movie, right? Where like we see Francois as this such a free spirit, like passing through places, right? And he has this chance encounter that could change everything for him, right? Like he he is able to form this connection with this girl almost immediately and, and completely randomly in the streets of Paris. And that sort of almost suggested that like, this is what Paris is, right? It's like, this is what this great confluence of people can be for us, right? It's like, it's this opportunity to grow and change and morph uh, with circumstances just as quickly as the city itself changes. None of that matters because- the thoughts that Francois have compound upon themselves and he can't free himself from it. And so he is doomed to follow his uh, conclusions to the the natural endpoint where he is so diverged from quote unquote nature, but more importantly, what everybody else thinks and feels that he is talking about something and everybody else is like, what are you talking about? It's like, for us, it's like, Francois, cannot, how can you not see that Anne does not care about you, that she's not in love with you, that you were a rebound guy and that you, she is now your Christian, right? Just like, like Anne's Christian, the aviator is dumping her. It's like, we can see the cycle so clearly because it's, it's right there. It's simple. For us to see, but when you're inside of it, because of the way that your thoughts compound upon each other, the way that you get fixated on these narratives, it becomes impossible for you to see a way out, right? Especially when you're a 20, 20 year old simp and you don't have a chance in hell because maybe you've <laughs> never been in love before the way that you're in love with this person, right? It's like, it's a little too real. I, it's, I think it, it does an amazing job of that, right? Because like I've been yeah. Francois. I think a lot of people have, Jesus. right? Where it's the just goal, like, the goal in life is not to be Francois. I think generally, it, like right? honestly, like that's the point, right? It's like, listen, man, like you have to, you got to get out of your head. Like you, you cannot be so lost in your own troubles and thoughts that you cease to see people as people and you start to see them as these sort of like object characters in the play that is your life, right? Like Fra- Francois yeah. is the like, damn, my life a movie guy. <laughs> Francois is not the damn my life of movie. I think the no, damn my life of movie guy has bottle service at clubs, drives a Ferrari. Uh, you know, here's the, here's the thing. I think I think the movie is saying that any, like literally everybody is that guy, though. Like, yes, yes, that, yep. That, well, that it's Francois, it's sorry. Continue. The just that Francois like himself doesn't see himself that way. Doesn't like necessarily textually 
view his life that way, but he is very clearly acting as such, right? Like there's a disconnect between what he seems to believe about himself that he like wants this relationship that there are, um, you know, that there's something to save there, I guess. And the actual, what we see, which is like a woman who doesn't love him, who is having a hard time loving anybody because of her own like existential depression and, uh, and his actions, which, um, are to ignore a girl who at least shows interest in him. I mean, we'll, I guess we can touch on the propriety later of like, flirting around with a yeah, 15 year old weird, girl. Huh? it is pretty weird it's very 1981 paris um and not to be irrespective of it but like at the same time clearly is set up as like a little meat cute right uh and then later he actually has um you know clearly romantic thoughts toward her but that he does not do things he does not enact plans and do things that like allow him to pursue and and like make those things happen like i said when he gets into conversations with the woman he wants to be his lover they don't actually get around to doing anything or resolving anything he becomes another shoulder to cry on for her to probably not like like he doesn't actually increase or change his standing with the woman at all uh he has these pretty meaningful interactions with lucy that don't go anywhere because he's too tied up with with something else right i think that it is that he is that guy, but that maybe he doesn't see himself that way. But it is like that awareness is that essential to being the damn my life a movie guy, the main character, the protagonist syndrome? No, I think that you you hit on something really good there, Jason, which is I think that this movie is really fundamentally sympathetic and empathetic, right? It's supposed in like the point to, to my way of thinking of giving us all of these interior perspectives simultaneously and then pushing them against one another to watch the train crash is to understand how that happens, right? It's like Francois doesn't understand what happened to him at the end of this movie when he sees Lucy in the arms of his friend and he's like, but wait a minute, like she was my she was supposed to be my love interest, but but we know what happened, right? And like that's that's where we're supposed to get is that like from a bird's eye view, it's actually not that difficult to understand what's what's going on here. But when you're in it, the way that we're all in it all the time, it becomes impossible. And the reason it becomes impossible is because you project, right? You make Anne into this like sort of like destined predestinate object like the love of his life that in words he chose her he says yes yeah yeah he keeps saying that and and like lucy's whole point is like women choose not men and he's like i don't i don't like that and it's like yeah i bet you don't like that bro um and like meanwhile i think that that the reason why lucy is such a great character in this and um i i don't mean this pejoratively but she she is sort of like almost a manic pixie dream girl in the sense that like she is the the like walking living theme of the movie in many ways because she has this perspective where she can like she is like so free and and willing and able to sort of go with the flow in this very zen context that like she she hangs out with this guy she picks fun at him for being so lost in his own thoughts at one point i mean they're they are consistently really clever and meta about it like she says that you make movies everywhere you go right it's like you're making this into a movie they keep talking about how the the guy that they're following might not even be christian right like we're pretty sure he is but like the movie continually throws up um doubt as to that because it's like we see christian leave the apartment and then we see a guy that looks just like christian at the bus depot or the the subway station and then um francois starts following him but francois is not he's like he says he's sure but we're not even 100 percent sure they're the same guy and then he's with this other woman and we have no idea who the other woman is we presumably it's his wife but then it turns out to be his sister etc etc like the the plot beats of the movie recreate the sort of formal idea right of of just sort of like each of these 
incidents are not even necessarily connected to one another, except by the line that you're drawing through all of them because you want to fabricate this narrative. And you do the same thing with your relationships and all of the people in it, right? Like at one point, Francois got it in his head, like there was a there was a shift and maybe it was in the diner, but like that shift was was almost palpable, right? Where he was like, oh, wait, like I could have a future with Lucy. Like she could be my love interest. And, and so he starts to pursue that only to be uh, disillusioned again, because it was like, no, she was, that was not, that was not what it was. Like she was, there was a, there was a moment, but you missed that moment because you were on this other track, right? Because you couldn't think of anything else because you, because like one cannot think of nothing, right? Um, there, like this again is, is sort of pulling back to, um, for me, like mechanically, this movie really relies on the way that the, like those long shots we've already spoken about to death, but I think that those also serve to help us focus on those shifts that Harry's talking about in like, I won't say the power uh, dynamics in a, in a dialogue, but like in the interiority and feeling that these characters have, um, like giving us more vis- vision into those. Um, I think that those, like they, you, they, those long shots help to, um, uh, help us forget, how long those scenes actually are and how long we've just been sitting there in the diner, um, for example, or in the park from the park scene to the end of the movie. There are just these, uh, you know, there are these times, I think they actually externalize it. I forget if it's Lucy or Francois who says like, we said we wouldn't talk for this long. And then after they've been talking for like right. 12 minutes or so, you know, like I think that the movie is using those um, specifically rumor, I guess is using those to like be emblematic, be like, maybe more wide shot symbolic of the, of the feelings that they're slipping into and out of, of like once they've slipped into a certain mode or vibe or feeling of the conversation, they can just start talking. Like he really divulges a lot of information about what he's doing there to a complete stranger. Uh, and before long, you already feel like they're, uh, you know, they're friends, they're confidants, like they're there. Maybe there should be something between them. Right. Um, when literally they were strangers, they only, they only reveal their names to each other after minutes and minutes of talking. Um, and like that, I think that is just building from the like feeling that they've slipped into, into the actions that they take without quite realizing it without like noticing this invisible hand of whatever it is that, you know, je ne sais quoi Parisian, uh, view like that precious view of love that Romer seems to uh, shoot each scene with like that invisible force that coercion that pushes them from a feeling to an action i i'm still having a hard time putting my finger exactly on what it does and where the turning point is in those scenes but that to me is like how smoothly pr- like brushed the paint is to 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 build these scenes like how how we don't really see the strokes that build to it until we're already in the next mode of a conversation or until we're already in the next clear like dynamic that they've built between these characters whether it's she thinks he's weird for being a like faking being a detective to she sees like a little bit of romantic ideal in his pursuit to it becomes like an out and out detective story you know like it's just it's very fluid it's very uh, I won't say prolonged because it does not feel as long as it is. It's like an hour 40 and it does not feel like that long a movie to me. Um, I, I don't know. It, it's, it's a really good, really natural flow, I think. 
yeah, you hit on something that I really wanted to talk about. So I'm glad you brought it up. Just the, the fact that like everybody talks about the park sequence, right? With Lucy and Francois, that's kind of where the movie really lives to the point where like somebody we watched with said it, it sort of upstages the rest of the movie, which is maybe true. I like, I personally think that the Francois and conversations are incredible as well, but you're right, right? It's like all of a sudden this is, it's such a stark difference. There's so much movement. There's so much fluidity. It's, it's all one scene, but the nature and vibe and genre almost of that scene, it shifts and morphs and changes through the park, right? As these people go from being perfect strangers who saw each other on the bus to being friends, to being sort of like um, romantically interested in one another, to being sort of confidants or um, like almost each other's therapists, right? It's it's all like, it it's so fluid and it's so sort of... Um, Zen. And I think that that's, that's the recreation of the central irony of this movie, right? Is that like, I think that they're suggesting that like real connection with people, it's not impossible. It just looks impossible because you are trying to force it to be something that it's not. You know what I mean? It's like Anne and Francois will never have the kind of connection that Francois wants. It's just impossible because of who they both are and where they both are. But, and as long as he pursues that, he will walk through life, uh, dead asleep awake, right? Like literally the symbolism is that he keeps falling asleep and he, he can't see anything else. That's all he's got. And that's, so he's wandering through life in this like dream state. Meanwhile, all of these incredible things are happening all around him, right? Like he, he forms this connection with Lucy completely organically, completely naturally in an afternoon and they become great friends and they have this chance to do something and, and to be something right. And like, I think that, that, it's it's about the joy of that creation that occurs in the right like smack dab in the middle of this movie and how it's contrasted with what comes before and what follows it right is that like right in the middle of this movie about the impossibility of true communication and connection and the ways in which our circumstances set us at end are uh, at odds with one another we have this really like we have this moment where these two paths converge and they become really like special right and it's largely because lucy's just in the right headspace for it um but francois isn't and so like this is like the ultimate sort of missed opportunity right yeah i also i also think that part part of francois's kind of big failing here is that he is he is treating a relationship with a a gravity that doesn't necessarily need right like he's 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 a romantic kind of to a fault right where i think that that anna's not they haven't broken up at the end of this film. Like I, I think that that you're you're probably correct in that they're. I don't really see too much of a a future with them. Like in the long term. Oh yeah, it's um, it's like worse that they didn't break up. I kept rooting for him to actually leave and just be like, please. Uh, and I mean, I'm, I I think that the the lesson he needs to get is that it's that that's fine, right? Like I, I think that the the gravity that he is giving this relationship is, I think, part of the issue, right? Where he need, he needs to view every relationship that he has as some sort of like large like you know she's the one i picked her sort of situation um so yeah so like when you say when you're talking about the gravity he's giving the the situation the relationship do you mean like the lengths to it like the thing that kicks off the plot is him like obsessively trying to get a plumber to come to her apartment because he knows that her plumbing is is shit and that her sink is is broken do you mean like that like actual externalization of his affection for her gravity uh yes and also like he he is he is uh he is so bought in to what is happening yes. that the idea of like it going south uh, would be like world ending for him yeah, right where you get the feel with, 
for mm-hmm. Anne, it would be it would be sad, right? But but Anne, I, I, again, I think part of this kind of ties into um, their age and kind of their position in life, right? Like he is somebody who is clearly like working uh, uh, full time, um, you know. He, well, he is working while he goes to school, right? But he is still in school. He is still figuring out what life means to him. He has not yet been kind of disillusioned by by the the kind of the rigors of, of everyday life. Um, but Anne, on the other hand, I think is a different character, right? Like we get a lot more of her uh, just kind of her day-to-day situation as she uh, uh, goes to work, as she has kind of a, a lunch with a, a friend from work, right? Uh, and then comes home after that and kind of, uh, try, you know, tries to rest up a little bit before going out with a friend later that night. Um, I think that we are supposed to kind of get the impression that Anne is slightly disillusioned with the kind of uh, the everyday nature of life and the life specifically that she lives, right? And she's she expresses that she is um, she doesn't like the idea of marriage, for example. Uh, she doesn't want to kind of be tied down. Even if she were to marry somebody, she would want to live in a different apartment. And and Francois says, well, that would be really expensive. And she says, no, two small apartments are, are about the same as one big apartment. Right. Um, she she is disillusioned with life and she's disillusioned with the structure that that she is supposed to have as a, a, a woman who is growing a little bit older and is supposed to kind of settle into uh, uh, those kind of molds that everybody's supposed to fit into. Right. Um, and Francois doesn't, he's not yet disillusioned in that manner. And, and he's kind of on the complete other end where he is like, so pouring his, his romantic nature into any, anything, uh, and everything. Right. And it, it kind of turns people off on the other end, right. Where you, you get the feeling that if he just had, like, if he was more relax. willing to go with the flow, yes, he needs to relax. He needs to go with the flow and understand that not everything that happens good or bad is, is some sort of life changing moment. That's what, um, that's what makes him such a problem. great, such a great relatable character. Right. Because like I was exactly that fire and brimstone about romance when I was 20 years old. Right. It was like, I like Francois uses the words like destiny and soulmates, right? He says like, oh, Anne and I have a deeper relationship. And it's like, what relationship is that, bro? Come on. But like, you're right. I, I think that very specifically, Christian was Anne's Anne, right? It was like she at one point was this person who was all about destiny and romance and the sort of like fate of your life in terms of relationships and the one person you have to be with. And like, it's like, it's so frustrating because it's like, Francois, relax, man. It's like, it's just supposed to be fun. Like you're supposed to like the person you're going out with, right? You're supposed to have days like you had with Lucy, you know, where it's just like you're two people who are just enjoying one another's company and enjoying the fact that life is, is good, right? And fun. And you're in Paris and you're a kid, you know? And it's like you, he can't see that. And it's so funny, right? It's like, he's almost like, like Romeo in Act One of Romeo and Juliet, right? Where he's trying to write poetry to Anne, and it's just like, bro, you gotta like, you gotta move on. You gotta like, you gotta see that this isn't happening, and and like recontextualize your life a little bit. Which is why it's so heartbreaking to me near the end where he. Whoops! I turned my own mic off. Um, I'm following the wisdom of the crowd on that one. Uh, the how like right near the end, he decides that he's going to uh, before, before he actually leaves um, Lucy at the diner or Lucy leaves him. He promises to send her a postcard with the results of his investigation into Christian and Anne's fling. Uh, And then when he finds out the truth of it, he writes it down on a postcard, gets ready to send it. And then of course discovers Lucy and her new beau who works coincidentally with Francois at the post uh, office or whatever. Um, Son of a bitch. Yeah. That real cad. Uh, He, um, 
he decides not to give it directly to her, not to put it in her slot. He's about to throw it away too, but then, and in this very like cumulative, I think all sort of encompassing moment of the character decides it's not, um, you know, like it would be the worst thing in the world probably to throw it away. Like it, he decides that of course it, it is the natural and normal thing because the girl is, uh, you know, not single one. She's, uh, you know, of questionable age two and three, Um, she has, uh, you know, like he already has issues with, with a woman currently. So like, it's probably not best for him to get directly close to this person, probably best for him to throw away the letter. Right. Right. He decides at the very last second to instead post it to her, to buy a stamp, throw it in the mail and keep that sort of like, that's why I think the character thrives on that. Like, and we've been talking about how he should just like, it's better for you. Get out of your own head, leave it. But he keeps himself at like this tantalizing distance, right? He's not going to leave it. He can't help himself, right? It's like exactly. these are instruments of torture that he's inflicting on himself. Yeah. He, he decides not to become as close or remain as close with Lucy as to leave it at her apartment without a stamp. He decides, and this is another case in which Aaron, like, it falls apart without social media, or excuse me, with social media, right? Or any form of quick communication, uh, even if these people had phones that they could be reliably, reliably reached at. Um, but he decides to, like, not totally disconnect and not go not go closer he decides that it's best to keep like this sort of like will he won't he will she won't she distance and then of course the final shot of the movie being that he follows the the new bow um down the street like it's it's just yeah like, like it, twin peaks giant it is happening again dot yeah <laughs> when i yeah exactly well like when i left the theater i think you said this too harry like you feel a little bit like shit when you've left because you had this sort of like hope you had this sort of like some thread to dangle on that maybe he was learning from it where maybe he was getting bigger where maybe he was uh sort of like he was making steps toward that get out of your own head like one can th- sometimes think of nothing but he doesn't. He like he's right back into it right at the end of the movie. And you gotta assume that he hangs out with the man until he finds some inference about uh, you know, about him and Lucy, or you know, he, he maybe he seeks to find the next mystery to go into. He just like he does not end up in a place where you where you're like comfortable with with his action, with with like where he is emotionally, physically, or mentally, right? That's what makes the character so and the and the journey so um like I think so much of a gut punch is that it does not end, right? Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, for me, it's like it's Lucy and the football, right? It's like Charlie Brown knows that Lucy's going to whip that football away from him at the last second, but he just can't fucking help himself, right? Like, that's that's how it feels for, for Francois, right? It's like Francois has all of these sort of like episodic um, interludes, and they all have the same theme, they all are the same message telling him to do the same thing. And the moment the, another one starts, he sees the crossroad and then he takes the path that's going to lead to personal torture again, right? It's like he just can't, it's, he's, putting his, he's putting his foot in the bear trap over and over and over again because he just like, there, it's so tantalizing, right? This idea of sort of a, a predestinate love and affection. And, um, and it's funny that you bring up that last scene, um, being undone by social media, because I actually think that it, like, it works really well for, for sort of like the modern day, right? Where it's like, this is now going to be an, another necro relationship that is going to keep Francois from moving forward, right? He'll be like sort of kind of in contact with, uh, this, this person, Lucy. And then the next time he meets the next Lucy, he'll be thinking about Lucy and he won't be able to make any moves with Lucy. Right. It's, it's just going to keep happening like that forever. Right. Um, it's, and like, it's so relatable because like who hasn't been that guy, like who, who doesn't have this sort of like, 
idea about the way thing, they want things to be and just like keeps clinging to it no matter how absurdly unrealistic it looks from the outside. And but there's something there's something so empathetic about just Francois's decision here at the end being like, I will accept any consequences. It's just, I just want it to be true so bad. Yeah. You know, yeah. And, and it's like, man, you're, you're doomed. My, my man. It, it hurts so good. Uh, well, I think I've run out of talking points. Do we want to head into our final thoughts or are we, uh, does anybody else have anything rattling around in there? Uh, can you, ima- can you imagine uh, taking uh, a train and then taking a connector like subway and then taking another bus uh, 45 minutes to like go across Paris. And then you like show up to your girlfriend's house or whatever. And then you go in, have like a 30 second argument and then you just have to leave. And you just, you're just like 14 miles away from where you started up. Really hellish. This uh, this is the ideal. This is the ideal. I don't know. It it seems exactly (laughs) like what he wants. I, yeah, I mean, I guess it, it, there's maybe something about French society and like the structure of their day, uh, that, that maybe fits into that where it's like, yeah, I guess I'm just going to sit at a cafe and fall asleep three times over the course Man. of four oh. hours. That does sound nice. I that does sound nice. Like, it's just so perfect. And from like, because then, then like all of the streets, like they remind him of her, right? And all of the clouds like form her face. And it's like, it's the perfect sort of like, you know that he's just in his feelings and he's just walking around with all that shit. And it's like the city turns against him, right? There's the there's the great irony of, of like, you are in the, the perfect place to break free and it becomes a prison, right? It, it's so good. I, I really love the fact that like, he keeps crisscrossing across town in the city right because it's like all of his emotions are mirrored back at him in the very geography of his journey and it's Mm -hmm. it's brutal (laughs) until we get that like final scene final shot where everything's just like sort of like dimly lit and very 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 green like the movie has been sort of naturally and brightly green up to that point and then it's just street light green like that sick paris texas green i was exactly gonna say paris paris texas yep Ooh, love it i love it uh, well, it sounds like that's probably our final thoughts on the movie. I got one final thought. Oh, no. Well, I got one final thought, not on the movie, but he can't uh, let it on go. The... One can't no, well, think of nothing. No, 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 not on, not on the film, but but with, with Cody gone, I had a, a final thought that for you two, it must be a nice, like, nice little break. You know, you, you get a week where you don't just get whooped mercilessly at uh, a Cody's Noties trivia. How does it, how does it feel to have a week off? You know, must be kind of soothing. Here's where Zencaster decided to stop actually backing up my audio. So suffice to say, we had a fun, spicy back and forth about Cody's noties without Cody here. Um, go to the Trilon, go to Trilon.org, find cool things there, including the rest of the movies playing in the Romer series, uh, and some cool stuff coming up next year as well. Uh, my name is Jason Daphnis. You can find me on Twitter at Nintendoofus. This is Trilove. You can find us on Twitter at Trilove Podcast. Uh, I've been Harry Mack, and you can find me on Twitter at Shiitake Harry, and maybe at the Trilon if you go to see the Romer movies. Yay! Uh, my name is Aaron. Uh, you, you know, if you're if you're in uh, Chicago, maybe catch me at uh, Facets uh, or catch me at Music Box. One of the two. Uh, I will be going to both semi regularly, hopefully. Uh, but until then, you can find me on Twitter at Harvey Please. Sacre bleu. <laughs> Je ne parle à personne.
Hey. 